Well, good afternoon, everybody. As always, I am very excited to have another episode up and a really great guest who I think you're going to get a lot of value from on today's episode. His name is Robert Thornburg. Uh, he was a broker for a number of years. Uh, he was actually the president of SIOR at one point, And a few years ago, he actually became the CEO of SIOR Global. So he's got a long storied career in commercial and industrial real estate brokerage. And now as the CEO of SIOR, he's going to have a lot of insight insights onto the brokerage industry. And more specifically, I asked Robert if we could talk about some of the tips and strategies and even pitfalls that brokers should be aware of when getting into the industry. So we're going to address all of that. And just before I bring Robert on as well, because I'll, I'll start by getting a little bit more of Robert's background. I just want to say that I'm using broker and agent interchangeably here. The terminology can vary across different markets. But when I say broker or agent, it's basically meaning somebody that's licensed to buy or buy, sell, or lease industrial real estate. So broker or agent interchangeably, uh, if we're going through that, just please keep that in mind because I'm not referring to a broker, which has some different terminology in different markets. So don't want to overcomplicate it. Broker and agent is interchangeable. Uh, and with that, Robert, uh, if, uh, if, why, if you could bring Robert on, Robert, thank you so much for joining me on this call. Great to be here, Chad. Appreciate the invite. Well, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to have you on because I got my SIR in 2017 and I've said numerous times that it's one of the uh, best decisions that I've made in my career. So to talk to someone who's been involved in the organization as long as you have in, in roles, including the president and now the CEO, really is an honor to have you on the show. So I'm very grateful to have you on here. Uh, and, and and with that, could, could we maybe start on, on your background uh uh, in the industry, you started a small boutique brokerage in Southern LA, merged with a much larger company. So you became a large regional player, uh, and then you eventually became the CEO of SIOR. So if you could dive into that a little bit and tell me some more of your story. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you've summarized it perfectly. I'll try to add just a little bit of color for the audience, but uh, on the business side, I would just say the overwhelming majority of my career in, in commercial real estate has really rested in the West Coast industrial markets. That early portion of it is, of course, as you mentioned, speaking to the transactional role as a broker in L.A. Uh, I was fortunate that that quickly morphed into a variety of leadership roles with companies like Haker Industrial. And then subsequently, when we merged Haker with Kidder Matthews, I was able to continue on. Uh, and for many of those years, I was able to both transact and help lead companies and lead teams. Uh, if you want to fast forward to where we are today as CEO of SIOR, that view and focus of the work has really now expanded globally. So it's a different global view. It's a different look, but kind of the same fundamental blocking and tackling of industrial real estate. So uh, I guess I always like to say uh, my role has changed a little bit, but industrial brokerage is still very much in my DNA and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, that's good to hear because your leadership is is well admired uh, within the industry. Uh, before we jump into a few more things, for those who aren't familiar with SIOR, because you could even see below our names, we I had Wyatt add both of uh, SIORs to our names. You're wearing your lapel pin. We're obviously quite familiar with it. Uh, but for those who might not be familiar with SIOR, could you just give an overview on that? Yeah. So listen, I'm always cautious about turning this into an infomercial for uh, for SIWAR, but I, I think there's something that people need to realize. You're not going to go find uh, the answer to that on our website. Uh, there's something about SIWAR and the fabric of our culture. Uh, it's one of those things where anyone that's ever interested, I always say, give me a call. I'll get you a conference invite to a conference. Come see it firsthand. It's, uh, it's a function of a number of different things. The best way that I would summarize it 
is think of 3,600 leading industrial and office brokers spread across just over 700 cities in 45 countries. The process to earn the designation is one of vetting. So you need peer endorsement, there's education, there's tenure, and then there's that ever important fee production. But the thing that I always say above all of that is character and integrity. So for anyone that's looking, I think, to advance their career at a higher level, uh, particularly in the I and the O, the industrial and office portion of real estate, it's an organization that's truly impacted every part, uh, every part of my career. And I'd recommend it to anyone that's looking for the same. Yeah. And I appreciate the note about not wanting to make it an infomercial. I've, I've really prided myself on this podcast and, and my YouTube channel in general about not talking about my, my career, what city I live in, or even what company I work for. So I, I deliberately try to avoid that, but I, I think that how you summarized SIOR is, is something that people should look into. And, and like Robert said, I would also be happy to jump on a call if anyone wanted to know more about SIOR. I've been a member for five years now, so not, not as much experience experiences Robert in that field but I, I could still uh, happy to chat about it and as why it just flashed up on the screen uh, please do feel free to uh, ask any questions for Robert in the live chat we have a, a program that we're, we're going to go through with a series of questions but we're also open to uh, addressing any questions that come up live so just please put it into the chat and we'll get through the best that we can to to answer as many as we can I see there's a couple questions that had already come up uh, and also just say hi to Logan uh, Neil and Beverly uh, thanks for joining in as well. And I don't know how to pronounce that name. You nerve, you nervous. Oh, that's, that's clever if that's what it is. Uh, thanks for joining in and, and saying hello. Uh, so going back to your career as a, a, as a leader within the brokerage, you're developing this small boutique brokerage into a large regional firm that you ultimately merged with. What was the process in developing perhaps yourself, but even in a greater context, all the other brokers who would have been imperative to seeing that brokerage be successful. How did you approach that development process of making sure that the brokers were, were developing alongside you? Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a background. And so I, what I would start with is actually the why. Uh, and this really came down to a few early career experiences for me, Chad. The first job out of college, and I talk about this often, ended up being a place that was uh, losing its way, for lack of better terms. On the outside, everything looked promising, but when you got into the inside, it told a very different story. Uh, mm -hmm. I like to say envision a low energy office, limited resources, a complete lack of trust, uh, and an environment where leadership was totally out of touch. If you fast forward a few years later, as I'd had the opportunity to move on in my career, the competitive real estate landscape was changing and scattered across the market. There were also real life examples of both brokerage teams and companies that were struggling because they had failed to reinvent. And so I guess I, what I would say is I had these rather unique case studies of what not to become. And I'd committed over my career to developing a very different approach, regardless of what my role or title was. Um, in terms of the, I guess, the difficult part of building anything that really took an honest look in the mirror. We were, closely examining who we wanted to be both as a team and a company, and then ask the bigger question, what do we really want to become? And for me, this was all about transforming into this highly respected regional firm, privately owned, uh, multiple street, uh, strategic office locations based upon need in the market. And then overlaying across this was just really recruiting smart, talented team players with common goals that, by the way, happen to like working with one another. So I wouldn't go into all the details, but I would just say that uh, we knew that we had to get very specific about the work. The market demanded it, and uh, we realized quickly we had to build a plan to sustain it and build it. I guess what I would say is it's really no different than an aspirational broker looking three or five years down the road and redefining where they want to be. 
Yeah, great question. So on on the topic of what a broker should be looking for, what what can a broker do to gain a competitive advantage? And and you could answer that through the lens of somebody starting out as a new broker, or perhaps even someone that just wants to take their business to the next level. What are some of the things that you had encouraged brokers to do, or what would you recommend to brokers in today's environment? I'll probably talk a lot about culture today. And uh, and again, a lot of that is drawing on my experience is both good and bad. I, I think the question is exceptional and it's something that I'm passionate about, but it starts with uh, that office environment, the business culture and leaders like us who have this ultimate responsibility to protect the team. And over the last few decades, we've seen countless examples of this marketplace, right? Both good and bad, as I mentioned, goes back to that first job. I was given a desk, a phone, and essentially told to get to work. No formal training, no meaningful guidance. And here's the thing for me. We're fortunate to be a part of this unique business and industry that I believe we all agree rewards the bold. But you also have to invest back into your people. And I'm confident you'd agree that sales at this level is exciting, but it can also be difficult. There's peaks and valleys and unexpected outcomes. It's also easy to forget, whether serving in the role of a business owner or leader of a team, that your single greatest asset walks out the front door each night. So what will you compel or how will you compel them to make sure they come back the next day, that they really want to come back to that office and thrive? Uh, again, going back to my early experiences, what I think I learned is where the energy goes, people go. And you have to be purposeful about stirring up engagement, pouring out optimism and these new ideas into your team and related culture. That for me has always started with a commitment to deliver more to those people you work alongside each day. We know what an exceptional culture is. And so I want to be really clear for a second here. This is really not about doing the work for someone. It's training, it's leadership, it's being a positive example of what excellence looks like. Um, and we can get into more specific examples, but I better pause here because I want to make sure, Chad, I haven't taken this completely off course. It wouldn't be the first time that I've done that. No, I love it. There's a few areas that I want to explore further into there. Uh, and, and I do want to get specific on that because I, I would really like people that are listening in to have some actionable items that they can take away from this on, on either something that they hadn't thought of before or just a great idea that they want to mm -hmm. act on. So for let, let's even just start with somebody newer into the industry, one to three years in, uh, you and I both know how difficult that can be. It's, it's stressful. You haven't made a name for yourself. You're, you're not making a whole lot of money. You're the outlook even looks a little bleak because you see large deals happening around you and you're still struggling to to string together a small deal. So what do you say to that new broker? And, and this can go back to when you were starting your office and you had a guy that was a year into the business and he just, he couldn't see the, he couldn't see the, the long-term vision for this. What do you say to that guy or girl? Well, listen, so this is, this is that tough part. I, I always caution if you're one to five years in the business, probably more one to three, you have to remember that every competitor you see is a walking flaw, but they learn how to maximize strengths. And I always think today's leading broker in your market, they weren't born into that role that he or she holds today. There's this thing about commercial real estate where we come into, we think we're going to make a million dollars tomorrow. It doesn't necessarily happen that way. It's a gradual build in this career. Uh, what I like to say is you have to be purposeful. And uh, by that, I mean really treating your brokerage as a business within a business. I talk about this often in the sense of you may work for a company, but it's your name in the marketplace that's also your unique brand and it's your competitive advantage. So uh, the things that you're talking about for this early emerging broker, we all have consistent challenges. And I find this to be the same for anyone in this space. It's finding that balance between prospecting, tours and networking and learning a local marketplace and everything in between. And of course, I've done it firsthand like you have. So I get that. 
The consistent key element here, though, for me is developing a business plan and creating accountability for your success. So um, we said we're going to kind of chop it up today. Let me uh, throw out a few random thoughts your direction. It's amazing how basics like understanding clearly how you intend on growing your business are missed. Who are your targets and why? What frequency do you plan to communicate with those prospects and how? I I play the, the simple math equation with a number of people where I say, well, tell me how big your database is. And if you believe conventional marketing says you have to have six to eight touch points in a particular year, well, divide back into that and tell me how you're actually going to get that done. And then we can get into the whole conversation of smart marketing. If your firm provides full service marketing support, that's great. But what else are you going to do to elevate your game? I like to say that average work only leads to average production. And so I'm going to keep going here because I'm on a roll. But I think about retention. Your competition's calling your clients. So how do you make sure that you're creating lasting trust and loyalty? And that goes back to your brand and your reputation. Are you only making money for your clients? Is that the primary focus? Are you making sacrifices? Are you setting 10% of your commissions aside so that you can eventually acquire real estate? Uh, I can really go on here, but I think stating the obvious, all of this takes planning. And I would say that the best in the very business excel at it. I give you just a quick example. Recently, just in the last month or two, I had the opportunity to sit down with what I would say arguably is the the leading industrial real estate team in the US. It was fascinating to be in their office and listen to them figure out how they plan the next year in terms of what they're doing for marketing communications. They know down to the day, week and month where they're gonna be, what they're gonna be doing, what their marketing plan looks like. Uh, The most interesting part is they constantly reevaluate. They know what success looks like and they're basically making adjustments mid year so they can continue to, to win business. That's your competition. So I'll go back and I'll finish where I started. It's that gradual build, but that's your bogey. That's your target because that's what excellence looks like in the marketplace. And without the plan, how are you going to get there? Yeah, that was very well said. And I want to jump into some of those topics in a minute too, specifically marketing and social media, which are, are you're very active in social media. You do a great job of it. So I want to get your insight into social media uh, and, and marketing, uh, Okoy, arguably one of the the most uh, notable guys in social media and blogging altogether. Uh, I think Koi is the real uh, rock star joining in here. Thanks for joining in, Koi. Uh, maybe we could get you to chime in on this as well as the the OG in uh, in Twitter. And uh, Ron, uh, thanks for joining as well. Uh, for those who don't know, Ron's got a YouTube channel that uh, that talks about industrial real estate as well. So I'd encourage them to check that out. Uh, I want to talk about, there was a question that came up a little bit earlier. And I think that this ties into what you had mentioned uh, about brokerages. And the, the question was whether someone should start at a boutique brokerage, a small boutique brokerage. Uh, there's the question. What's the difference between working at a boutique brokerage or a larger firm? And and I want to address that, but I also want to even get a little more granular and talk about how different firms treat employee uh, brokers as they're going through the process. But first, uh, how would you, and I know that there's not a perfect answer for this, and it's probably even a little delicate to answer, but from your perspective, how, how would you uh, advise someone that's deciding between a boutique brokerage and a large firm? Yeah, uh, the the good news is we all have friends who work for a variety of different firms for different reasons. And I think that's one of the many great things about this business. People are out there looking for the best fit for them, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's a little bit of a deeper dive we could take on the movement that happens in the marketplace, why brokers particularly you know, make a switch. I, I try to keep the conversation very simple. What are you looking for? Where are you at in your particular career? A boutique firm with an exceptional mentor could be just as good as a global firm and that and also has that equivalent mentor. What's your local marketplace? What are the dy- uh, dynamics? 
I try to flip the conversation a little bit when I'm talking to, to brokers that feel like they're in a challenged culture. Here's the bottom line. If you are in a culture that doesn't match your ethics, your character, and your desire and need for growth, you owe it to yourself to move on. That's not your failure. That's something that's happened locally within that business, large or small. There's a better place out there for you, and you need to, uh, to learn. You need to have the opportunities to elevate your career. And so I don't think you ever need to be apologetic about that. Now, let me just stop for a minute. Be open and honest with your broker and, and your mentor and tell them what you don't think you're getting. And by that second or third chance, when you realize that that's not um, developing the way that it should for someone of, of, of your experience, it is time to move on. So I don't know if that answers the question. Uh, it, it, it really just comes down to what your preference is. I know some independent brokers that work for boutique firms that absolutely make millions of dollars year after year. I know brokers that work for big firms that do the same. So uh, I don't think that it's a one size fits all answer. It's really what's best for you. Yeah, I'd echo that as well. And, and that's a conversation I have regularly with people getting into the industry is they struggle where to where to find a fit. And and I, I just put it back on them. Where do you see yourself having the best chance of career success? And that could be at a large uh, international firm where they might have a program in place to guide you through the whole process. It could be at a, a small boutique firm where you might get more hands-on uh, involvement. But it, it varies market to market. And, and really the best thing you can do is, and it's no different than a company looking for industrial space. You gotta do a survey of the market, find out everything that's available to you at that time, and then just make the best decision you can with the information you have available. I think it's the same process if you're a broker. Survey as much as you can see where there's opportunities and just see where you're a best fit uh, and then at that point then you, you then you at least know that you made an educated decision and you saw both sides of it uh, i couldn't agree more and without getting too far in the weeds my quick take is any smart broker already knows the landscape and the options that are available to them and your options year one are going to be significantly different than year three and five as you start to capture more market share and and you know you build your name and reputation in the marketplace you know, and there isn't a whole other side of this too, which is you talk about movement uh, and the why in the marketplace. The sad part is I see more professionals leaving companies because of a bad manager or leader, not because of a bad company. And that's a really tough thing to watch. Yeah, I know that was one of the topics I actually wanted to, to dive into a little bit later on, but the, it's topical at the moment. So let's let's touch on that. You must have seen a ton of different brokers move from one shop to another shop. What what was the impetus for doing that in, in most cases? Was there a common theme that you saw or, or was it just as simple as that they had a clash with the manager or someone else there or they saw a better opportunity in another firm? What's some of the things that you've learned along the way of company of brokers that have gone from brokerage to brokerage? So again, no perfect answer here. And I want to be careful about, you know, trying to put this all into one bucket here for me would be the hard, honest truth though, for, for business owners and those managing teams, a vibrant dynamic workplace has this incredibly strong pull to it, right? It's that creative piece where everyone knows there's something different and special occurring across the street that as a natural byproduct drives interest and change. And it's far more than competitive splits. Uh, and so if people aren't talking about your company in an energetic way, then you're at risk. Your brokers are eyeing that energetic company because they've made the conscious decision to do something different and distinct in that marketplace. Now, there's other things out there that, you know, that cause influence. I referenced the bad manager or managers, plural. It's uh, there are no shortage of options in the marketplace. And I really think there's some companies doing some fantastic work. Um, it's the companies that choose to remain stagnant and complacent. They're really the ones that I think are going to be uh, in a difficult spot in the next couple of years to come, particularly with technology and the influences that are happening there as well. 
Yeah, and that's a natural segue, I think, to move on to the to the next part where I wanted to explore. And I'm cognizant of our time, and and I also do want to encourage people to ask questions because I I had a few people even reach out to me before this, saying that they were really excited for this. So I have a feeling that there's some questions percolating. So I do want to leave time for that. But, but moving on to the technology side, and maybe maybe we could break this down into a smaller category. So on the technology side, we could look at it as marketing, communications, social media, uh, databases. There's a number of different directions we can take technology, but perhaps on what we could start with the marketing and communications. What have you seen develop in that space over the years? And what do you think is, is a good productive system that people could use or at least inquire into uh, based on what's worked well in your, in your experience? Big bucket. Marketing really is your best friend. Uh, some of the best support I ever received as a broker when I think back early on in my career was a PR company that I had hired outside of the company. And they said very clearly to me, Robert, we're going to help you cast a much la uh, larger shadow. That resonated for me as a transactional broker on the market in so many different levels. It's really amazing how much this has changed just in the last few years. Uh, this area of marketing, PR, and I call it uh, all things external messaging. It doesn't sleep. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, I might take us on another tangent here, but it's interesting because as an industry, when I think of marketing, we all have a natural tendency to sell the same way. A good friend of mine who does a lot of public speaking in our business says that we all look, walk, and talk the same way. But he also challenges his audience time and time again. It's really fun to watch him because he has the same shtick. And he says, if one of us could just figure out how to be 10% different than our competitive set, that the market would actually perceive us to be 20 or 30% different in terms of its overall mm -hmm. impact. Yet here's the sad reality. So many of us go back and we keep doing exactly what we did yesterday. So I would say be bold and do the unexpected whenever possible. Clients are anticipating the same old pitch. Take advantage of this. Be unique in your approach. Uh, and if you tell me that you don't currently have that creative thinking skill set in house or with your team, then absolutely go out and find somebody outside. You need to hire a company that's going to help support you. Uh, the piece that I think is critical is the speed and the amount of content that we're receiving has altered our landscape forever. And it's only becoming more complicated day by day. Uh, I like to say that commercial real estate isn't a casual profession. So guess what? Your marketing can't be either. Hmm. So is there anything specific that you've seen to put, to put you on the spot? Like any of those creative ideas that really stood out to you? I was on a panel just a couple of weeks ago and I received the same question. So I'm going to give you the same answer that I did for that audience. I, I think that the idea that you're going to find that one shiny thing is that paralyzing effect that keeps us from moving forward. It's about creating that, that distinct buzz. It's something that matches your personality. It's about doing it in a slightly different, more consistent way. It's uh, it's back to the 10% the factor. Find a way to be 10% different in terms of your messaging. The market's going to perceive it as being entirely different. It's uh, the idea that you have to go out and find that one massive idea is what keeps us keep, continue to do the exact same thing time and time again. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, in the commercial real estate industry, it's it's almost lagged behind a lot of other industries in terms of that, like that technological or that cool factor of someone doing something really different. And I don't know if that's just a factor that it's worked so well for so long that people are afraid to drive outside of that lane and try something a little bit unique. Uh, but you're right, it's the, uh, we do, we all walk, talk and dress the same way. So someone needs to be able to differentiate themselves on that. 
I, I suppose we're seeing that in social media to an extent now. There's like Koi being a gr- great example uh, with Twitter. He's he's the he's the king of commercial real estate for Twitter in my mind because he's been doing it for so long and he supplements it with his blog. But he's he at least until a couple of years ago, there was very very few people in the commercial real estate industry that were utilizing that technology. So with social media, how have and, and you're active on Twitter as well, and you you've you engage with people and you're putting out good content. How how have you seen social media transform in a relatively short period of time? Because social media is only 10 years, well, 10 to 15 years old, depending on the platform. How in that short period of time, how have you seen social media perhaps not even transform the industry, but at least have the potential to transform the industry? Yeah, I wish we could give Koi the mic, because uh, he'd do a far more effective job <laughs> of that premise than I would. But uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the question back and say it differently. Uh, what I get asked more often than not is does a broker today really need to play in this space or is it just more noise? Is it just that one additional thing that you got to do because people are saying uh, that, it, that, that it's a must do and you have to adopt? I believe the answer is a very clear yes. And what you're really doing, though, is you're building a plan for year-round engagement. And that includes, yeah, social media, email, video, elements of print, right? I say often print isn't dead. And then, of course, telephone and in-person outreach, networking. Today, you have to do every bit of it to compete. I don't know if you remember, Chad, when uh, SIR and Eric Qualman speak uh, at a conference a few years back, but this is someone that's clearly in the know and his view uh, related to the ROI of social media today is that your business will actually still exist five years from now. And I love that quote. That's the degree of its overall power and influence on what we're doing. And uh, from my view, it's not going away. People have been saying that for years. Oh, it's just gonna become the next thing. Well, the next thing is just something you're that much more experienced in. Uh, so again, I'll throw it out to Koi because he would probably know better than I would. But the last numbers I saw reported on LinkedIn is that two new users join every second. Twitter now has over 390 million active users. I guess Elon's going to tell us how many of those are fake accounts. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, there's a whole new group of decision makers who are paying attention in some ways that I've just never really seen before. And so, uh, listen, you got to jump in. The best recommendation I can give anyone today who's on the fence is the worst action would be no action. Most of the stuff is very intuitive. It's user friendly and it's not as scary as some make it out to be. So I'll kick it back to you, Chad. What do you think? Yeah. And and Beverly, who's uh, who's joined in on this is uh, actually a social media expert. Uh, she was on the channel last week. So for people that want to dive into some of her tips, if you check out last week's episode, she had a, a number of awesome tips. Uh, and I'll, I'll answer from my thoughts in a second here, but uh, Robert, but I just want to read her comment. Uh, yes, social media isn't meant to be a replacement of your marketing. It's meant to be a supplement. I, I think that that's like a really profound statement. And I think that that's what, what people really need to acknowledge is with social media is it, it can't replace place the traditional mechanisms of finding business. I, I remember a, a really old guy in my office once said uh, that you need to find a way to make your phone ring. Uh, and and that could be symbolic of getting emails or, or any me- method of people reaching out to you, but you got to find a way to have people getting in contact with you. And social media alone would be tough to have that as your exclusive mechanism of lead generation or prospecting but it's certainly a leg of that stool so do you want a two-legged stool where it's just cold calling and prospecting or do you want to add a couple legs and maybe you have some social media uh to add on to it to supplement that business uh and and that's that's where i've personally found a success on that and I would also uh, echo, and I mean, we could just we could keep using Koi as a case study for this because anyone that follows Koi will see that he's not on there saying 
new listing or i just i just leased five thousand square feet and he's using it as a megaphone to just promote how awesome he is he's engaging in conversation he's putting out content he's putting out useful information engaging with the people that are on there there's a reason that he's had so much success is because you compare that to and i'm sure you see this robert all the time as well a broker just goes on and just blasts out information and it's just noise and if you could put yourself in the shoes of an average person on LinkedIn. They're going on to LinkedIn to find something interesting or useful or entertaining, much like all of social media. They're not going on there to see an advertisement, which is what, what, an, what, what that would be. If you just said, I just listed this 50,000 square foot warehouse, here's the brochure. That's an advertisement. And it might work for someone. Someone might be, might say, Oh, well, great. He's, he's doing well. He's got a 50,000 square foot warehouse listing, or perhaps in the rare chance that there's a company that's looking for that space, but that's a very, very small portion of the amount of people that are on LinkedIn or any social media for that fact. So there's, there, it's much better to just try and engage with people uh, the best. And I don't remember who I even got this from, but it, this is the most powerful thing that I've learned about social media is that treat it the same way you'd treat a networking group. You wouldn't go into an, into a networking function and go up to a group of 10 people and start going going into your pitch right away just be walk up to a group of 10 people hey guys i just want to let you know about this yeah. new list and i got and why it's so great everyone would be like beat it like get out of here uh but if you went up and you actually had a conversation with people and you tried to get to know them a little bit and then it came up on what your business was and you exchanged business cards and maybe you grabbed a coffee later you start thinking of it as a long-term process the same way you try to meet somebody at a networking group i think you increase your chances of success that much more uh, kind of same same idea that you've had along the way. Hundred percent. It's uh, it's a conversation, and huge credit to to Coy. He can write us a check after for all the shameless promotion of him. But <laughs> you know, there's countless examples out there, and you know, Natalie Wainwright, um, Dan Palmieri, both uh, in the Las Vegas Absolutely. market, work for different firms, but you know, they have different voices, but they do a phenomenal job of making it a conversation. And you can talk about people like Casey Flannery and Melissa Alexander, and the list goes on and on and on. I think Russell Patterson, uh, you know, out of Texas, he, I mean. He actually, you feel who he is as a person when he's communicating with you on social media, as you do with Koi and others. So this is building relationships. And you just said it perfectly, Chad. It's like walking into a room and networking. It just, it's on a social platform. Yeah, it's I, all those people that you named are all people that I follow on Twitter. And I follow the, and, and I'm, I'm, I look forward to just seeing what they have to post because that you see their personality, even though it's virtual and, and I've, I haven't met a number of those people. It's still just a, uh, an opportunity to see what they're like because they're not just shamelessly promoting themselves all the time. Uh, you went, did you go to that networking event, uh, last year that the, the inaugural one? Yeah, I did in, uh, in, uh, in Tahoe. And I think their upcoming one is this fall in New Orleans. I'll be there as well to help support it. That was a really interesting thing because you, you feel like you've met a number of these people in person because of the engagement that you have over a prolonged period of time on social media. And you meet them in person and the conversation actually just picks up right where you left off on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, it was a wonderful, thoughtful group of commercial real estate practitioners that also happen to really dominate in this particular space. So anyone that's looking to learn more and what I would call a, a thoughtful and respectful environment, definitely look it up online. And uh, I wonder if Koi can actually uh, let us know the dates. I think it would be good to, to share that with your viewers. Yeah, Koi, uh, when uh, Koi just said, like Robert said, differentiate yourself. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. Uh, Koi, if you happen to have uh, a link or the dates for that conference, if you could throw that in the chat. Uh, if you don't have it available, we'll just put it in the comments uh, after on that as well. Uh, this is very valuable from, is that you nervous? I, 
uh i'm always nervous so if you're calling me out then that's very 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 accurate uh like universe just the brand new office guy uh well i, I think that there's a lot of applications between industrial real estate office retail uh, i think commercial real estate can can really just be a broad category with these sub asset classes that that get broken out but there's there's differences of course but there's also a lot of similarities to them and and it's just even getting back to sior with it being about industrial and office brokers uh there's there's ones that are for Retail, like ICSC is a, is a great one uh, for people that just want to get involved. Uh, another one that I always recommend is uh, NAOP. Uh, used to be used to stand for the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties. They dropped that name but kept the acronym. Uh, and now I believe it's just the Commercial Real Estate Development Organization. I don't even I don't even know what they rebranded that to, but I, I've been a member of it for for a number of years. That's another great organization. So I, I'd love to jump into that topic as well because that's uh, that's another thing that that I always recommend to people is that they need to find uh, ways of of and it goes back to that original comment. You need to find ways to make your phone ring, and the the online platforms and social media are, are very handy. I think we've we've talked about that a lot, but even just the the more granular things that people can go to networking functions engaging what what do you what, what's the best practices that you've seen across your career for networking and just getting involved in the community yeah building a trusted network of advisors and relationships it's uh it's everything we're we're a people business right i love the quote from uh robert kiyosaki the richest people in the world look for and build networks everyone else looks for the work so there's no shortage of ways to go about this but i'll tell you I always felt that it starts with delivering value back. A uh, trusted network of advisors and relationships requires you to bring something to the table. And even if that's your one in the business, you can still do the work, you can help, and you can be receptive to that, whatever organization you're joining. You just can't join the network and expect overnight success. I think sometimes people forget that the relationships that top leading real estate professionals have built are the result of years of building, hours of hours of attending events, traveling to conferences like we do, those long dinners when, if we're being honest, you'd much rather be at home with a family and so forth. So like anything, there has to be an early recognition that it just didn't happen in a vacuum. It takes time, planning, uh, and I suppose that thing called hard work. The good news, though, is it's available to anyone who actually wants to put in that time. If you're starting networking, my recommendation is always start local, mar local market, local community, and make sure it's something that you're passionate about with a with a thoughtful approach. I promise it'll build from there. And uh, you know, we'll probably get into the designation conversations a little bit. And we can elaborate on the why there, but uh, yeah, you have to commit. You have to put in the time. It's not going to happen on its own. Yeah, I agreed. And and to just add to that from my own anecdotal experience is that you have to approach networking with a long-term outlook. It's, it's, I've done a ton of networking since I started in the business and there were, there were organizations that I didn't get business from for a, over a decade. Uh, so like it's really planting a seed that you're going to water and nurture, but it, it could take years, decades for that to actually turn into, into a, a plant. So I, you have to be patient. It's I, I, far too often. I hear people that join a, a networking group or they like a rotary club or a business group or a chamber of commerce. And they, they go to an event and they, they're discouraged because they didn't immediately meet someone that, that could help them, or they didn't have any good conversations that that's, that's a narrow outlook to take as opposed to someone that's diligently, like you said, going to dinners when you'd far rather be at home with your family or, or, or doing virtually anything else other than eating the rubber chicken that gets served there. You'd rather be almost anywhere else, but it's that 
routine of doing it time after time after time where people start seeing you showing up to these things and you you become a familiar face and if you're engaged with conversation you're and you're, and you're actively looking to see how you could help the other person i think that that plan has a much better chance of of long-term success than the guy who just goes around and hands out business cards and expects to have leads coming to it so social media and networking it's, it's a long-term outlook on how you can grow a sustainable business but don't expect results very quickly and as Ron uh, added in, set those long tail expectations. You won't be disappointed. Yeah, that's that's saying it way better than I could. I, I do, I I do want to. So that I don't want to discourage people though that are saying, "Well, I I need money right now. I need I need to. I, this is all great. I I'd love to build a long sustainable business, and I'm prepared to do that. But I also need to start making money right now. And there's a question that came up from Neil uh, White. If you can pull that up, because I think that this actually speaks to it as well. Uh, what is the best way to shorten the learning curve in the first one to three years? Find a mentor, read books, certifications. So I, perhaps we could leave the certifications to last because I, I do want to have a specific uh, question for you on that. But uh, not even just the learning curve uh, on shortening the learning curve, but how can somebody shorten the time it takes to actually be a producing agent? So I guess two two ways you could go about that everyone obviously needs to learn this is a business that doesn't just come naturally nobody's taught about industrial real estate in high school although if i had my opportunity i'd make that part of the curriculum uh but nobody's thought about that in high school uh it's difficult to even learn there's not a whole lot of resources out there right now what can a broker do to shorten that learning curve and start ultimately uh, getting production going Listen, it goes back to the business plan for me. And it's just this is based upon years of having these conversations with individual brokers at boutique firms, teams that you know are looking to take it to the next level. If someone were to ask you today what it is that you and your business are trying to accomplish, would you have a very specific answer? And I think that as you're growing a brokerage business, the more specific you can get in terms of the work, the faster you're going to accelerate through. There's a lot of noise. Chad used that term earlier in the marketplace and things that will get you distracted. The work that's going to lead you to be successful, the beauty of this is there are no secrets in the marketplace. It's just simply that some people, and I hate to make it about work, it's work, it's time and everything that gets intermixed there, but they are willing to basically tune out the noise and put in the time. Uh, it's going to be specific to you. I know a number of brokers that only return emails in the morning and the afternoon and you get the auto response that says, you know, I, I only respond to emails during this period. That works for them. That never worked for me. I wanted to be reactionary to clients. You got to build a plan that works for you. Uh, and I also don't want to skip over the fact that whoever your mentor or leader is in your office or your region is going to have far more influence in terms of your future success than you realize. And if you ask that question about what that mentor is giving you today, you don't have a clear answer. You might want to start reevaluating as well. My take. Yeah, no, that's a good, good take on that. I could add add one in just myself as well because I had this conversation with a young broker the other day at a different firm. And, and I said there's a number of things you can do. Like there's no one solution that that's going to make a bro broker successful. But if you have a, a business plan, I think is imperative. Like you mentioned, there's all these different legs of the stool that you need to have on there, but you need to get the phone ringing right now. So what, what I recommended to him is even if you don't have any property listings yourself, find a, an agent or broker in your office that has listings in an area that you want to work in and just ask him if he can drop off brochures of that property and work with any leads that come off of it. And if there's an agent that is 
under marketing a property and he sees an opportunity for someone to go and drop off a hundred brochures for that property. That's a value add for the, for the broker, for the property owner, as well as that agent. And what I would do if I was that new agent is go into a hundred buildings within proximity of the one listing that you're going to take, so print off a hundred brochures, walk into every space and just say something simple. Hey, we've got a property listed just down the street from you. Just wanted to know if you guys had any need for uh, industrial real estate space at this time. And that's a lot different than just walking into a space and say, uh, with nothing in your hand and just saying, hi, can I talk to the manager uh, where everybody can appreciate there's, there's gatekeepers and there's secretaries and there's people that are deliberately there to try and reject you on it. But if you're going in with actually some information, there's value to having that because you can, you can say, this is a property listed just down the street. Uh, if, if you're interested, I can give you some more information on it. Just talk to you about the market in general. And there's a chance, especially if that company has an upcoming need for real estate space, there's a chance that they could say, yeah, I'm actually, I am interested in what's happening in the market. Because if a company isn't interested in what's happening down the street from them on what represents one of the largest expense items to have on their financial statements, then you question how serious they're taking their business. But that's a great lead in on how you can just take brochures. You're helping an agent in your office. You're helping one of your agent's clients by getting more exposure to the listing. And even if you can't help that client, that that company that you're walking into their space, even if you can't help them with that particular space, you've now just made a connection. So you start, you add them to your CRM, you start following up with them regularly. In my mind, that's the, that's the best way to immediately get business as a broker and spend a few hours a week doing it. Most, and I, I did that early in my career as well. Most people are actually very receptive. If you're going in with value, you're going in with a brochure that has market information on it. You're bringing something to them as opposed to just annoying them by coming in unannounced. So that, that, that's just one, one thing that I'd recommend that, that, that I've seen work, but you've, you've probably seen dozens, hundreds of different ways that people have found ways to prospect for business uh, in your career. Hey. Yeah. Knocking on doors, right. Going through loading knocks in the back, you know, if needed, uh, you know, how about just the simple function of, uh, you know, old fashioned cold calling. And, and as you were talking about, I thought the recommendation you made was perfect. If you don't have a really exceptional cold calling script, if you're, you know, the type of broker that's picking up the phone and you should be right. I don't know how you'd survive in the market without at least a piece of that. There's someone in your office that is probably very adept at it. I imagine they'd be willing to spend an afternoon if you just sat in their office and listened to what's working for them. And so try to find that. If you don't have it in your office, I guarantee there's somebody else out there. There's a lot of consultants and coaches that I think do some exceptional work there. But being able to be effective in those calls uh, is just as important as making it. And good question from Logan here on that topic. And, and Logan's also very active on social media. He's an industrial estate broker and investor himself. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to leave a link to Logan's uh, channel uh, later as well, because I, I highly encourage people to check him out. He asked, how much cold prospecting do you see the top teams doing? Various. It's, uh, you know, what product type, if we're talking industrial, you know, I, I the team, I don't want to give this away in terms of the information they shared. I think that would be unfair. But, you know, I guess I would ask, how many cold calls do you want to make? And, you know, what is your actual, if you're in the South Dakota market and a small city, then the number of cold calls you're going to making is different than if you're an industrial broker in Los Angeles and you're a tenant rep team or an industrial agency team. Uh, I have a team member that I know quite well and worked for years, and they would make 300 cold calls a week. That was their number. That was their bogey. Uh, you're going to have to back into it on your own and figure out what is actually successful for you. You know, it's you, we talked about this early. You're still trying to close deals. 
if you're getting to an appropriate point in your career, you're also uh, attending those networking events. So the, the, I don't know, the 365 degree view of your work isn't just basically banging at the phone anymore. So I don't have a perfect answer for it other than it's unique to the person. Early on, obviously, you're making a lot more cold calls than you would later on. Yeah, and I, th I think even cold calling has a has a really negative connotation of someone just opening up a phone book and calling random businesses and asking if they need in, uh, industrial real estate at this time. I, I I would recommend people be a lot more deliberate. So it'd be the same thing. Perhaps you just leased a space uh, in a building. Uh, if you got a list of all the businesses in the area and you just called them up and said, "Hey, I just completed a deal across the street on a space similar to yours. I just thought you'd be interested in knowing that information." You're increasing the chances of them wanting to hear from you. So I, I agree a hundred percent. You you need to find a system that works for you. And, and, and even more from a, from just a standpoint of business longevity, you also want to find the, the amount that you're not going to get burned out because there's, there's a lot of people that, that come into this business and they get subjected to cold calling five to eight hours a day. And then they only last three months and understandably so that, that's a pretty you're basically a telemarketer if the, all you're doing is just cold calling every hour of the day you need to you need to get out there and learn the business and be touring properties and dealing dealing with people so you got to find the optimal optimal number that will work for you that you can commit to do it routinely because you, you could you could say i'm going to cold call 20 hours a week if you do it one week and then don't do it again well that's not nearly as beneficial as doing five hours a week for the whole year so i, I think that it's a few just what i've learned uh, over my career is have a message uh have, have a reason to, that you're giving value to that person that you're talking to as opposed to just uh interrupting their day and then just find a way to stick to it have a purpose right it's yeah, uh, purpose yeah you sure. mentioned that a few times you got to own what it is right you are picking up the phone it's probably not an established relationship so in that nature it is very much cold so i don't like running from that i'm not saying that that's what we're saying but Calling and saying, hey, can I have your business? And calling and saying, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a recent transaction that occurred down your street, why it's relevant to your building. I was always a little bit more of a softer sell on the phones. And so my whole thing, and, and credit to my, my second mentor business, but he taught me to walk a market before I could talk a market. And industrial, that's a little bit different, but I'd walk a, you know, a couple of blocks and then I'd make a point of dropping cards. And then I'd go back and I would cold call, warm call that particular marketplace right after, because I remember things about buildings and I knew what was happening in that submarket. Well, those cold calls transition to something far more effective and successful. And so I think that's probably why when I go back to the number or the measurement, it's really unique to your process. So you've got to find out what's going to work best for you. But those informed calls are just significantly different than just, you know, dialing through uh, for the sake of dialing. Yeah, I always like comparing two situations in these type of uh, examples. First situation is someone that just cold calls businesses at random. They get a list of all the businesses in the area and they're just calling them, asking if they can speak to the decision maker and seeing if they have a lease coming up for renewal. Compare that to somebody that actually has some information to give. And maybe it's uh, a few comps that just happened in the area or a large building just sold or something meaningful that that person wouldn't have and you're calling to offer to to give them that information and just say you work in the area if any if they ever have any questions you're happy to be a conduit of advice who's going to have a better chance of success one call versus another call and and what what magnitude of of like real cold calls would that person person a have to make to give the same amount of value as person b had to make like person a might have to make a hundred calls versus that one person making five targeted calls where you're given information. So I, I, I would, 
and I and I know Logan does a lot of prospecting. He's a he's a very active prospector. I'm sure that he's doing the same thing on that as well. So I, I like the point that it's you have to have a purpose. What's the purpose of making the calls? Find out something that you can commit to to doing it regularly, and just make sure you're adding value to the equation as opposed to just expecting someone to uh, to return your call and sign up to be your client. There, there's got to be more to the equation than that. And and I think that that all that all frames like with what, what we've said earlier about social media too. Like it's there, there's got to be a reason that someone's going to engage with you or follow you there has to be something what what, the uh, radio station what's in it for me fm right right that wwi fm uh well what's in it for them it's the same way whether you're prospecting going to a networking group social media if you if you change the way that you're looking at the conversation from being just about you on why you're there and what you need to benefit but instead what you can offer to the other person then i think that that goes uh, a long way and uh, Logan, great comment. Smiles and dials, baby. I know that. <laughs> I know he does a ton of frost. Logan. Yeah, yeah thanks I, for that, Logan. Chad, I just, you know, it's. Uh, I always thought and felt, and I still think to this day, that my success in brokerage was in great part predicated upon the number of decision makers that I engaged with in any given day or week. How I engage with them varied, right? So there's the cold calling we just talked about, but then we go all the way back to the marketing conversation, which is you just mentioned. There's social media. I talked about print briefly. If you're doing all of that in a consistent and successful way, it all connects and it's going to lead to a hugely successful career. When you start pulling elements out, you're simply reducing and diminishing the opportunities that you have to connect with that same group. So it is a little bit of an A to Z in terms of being that consummate professional and, and making sure that you're exposing yourself to the prospective market um, opportunities. Yep. Uh, great point. Uh, I did want to get one, because you mentioned earlier about how uh, brokers uh, should also uh, look to become investors down the road. And I know that you've been an active investor throughout your career as well. And and I believe you actually even gave a, a talk on that. I missed it, unfortunately, but you were just talking about about that. How, how can, how do you see brokers finding that path from, from A to B, from being a broker to also becoming an investor on their own? Because I, I know that's a, that's a really interesting topic for a lot of people in the industry. Start small. It's, it, it's some, at some point, it becomes a little overwhelming, particularly if you're new and, and you talked about that one to three year broker, you're just trying to close deals and you're trying to advance your career. The thing that I've always felt is, and this sounds a little harsh, there has to be an element of sacrifice, right? If it was easy, then everyone would do it and everyone would be a real estate investor. If you're an industrial broker, the investment doesn't have to be the million dollar investment down the street. Uh, what about a, simply buying a, you know, a duplex in your local community? I think that there's something about holding back 10% of a fee. And at my old, old company, we basically set up where we did a friends and family kind of deal, where we'd go out and try to find the opportunity, but we would encourage the brokers to set aside the 10%. We would hold it in a separate account. And then when we had that opportunity, they had X amount of days with which to respond. If they ever wanted to pull their money out, this was really mundane, but it was simplistic in a way that everybody could basically gauge whether they wanted to participate or not. So we were trying to lead by example. And then when we closed the deal, we would obviously promote its success and it took time uh, tenure for brokers where they became more comfortable, but that's a culture piece again. If and not every firm really endorses this, and so I'm sensitive to that. But the the, the actual talk that you're um, alluding to is I speak about making sure that brokers don't buy uh, don't die broke. And listen, I love transacting brokerage. 
but I love transacting brokerage so that I could also buy real estate and become an investor. I think those two things should and always should be synonymous with one another. That's, uh, I mean, to me, that's why I got in the business to begin with. So your, your ability to get started and just think of one. Uh, I know actually a very successful broker and their goal is to at least get a fractional interest in a deal every other year. That seems reasonable to me. So start small and grow from there. Do you, is that talk that you did pre-recorded? Is it available if we... It's no, I wish it was. Yeah. Well, I've maybe that's a... on, yeah, I've done some writing on my blog that you know we could probably link back to. Uh, I, listen, my offer, and, and I, I share this, and I'll try to remem remember to make the comment at the end of this. Anyone that ever wants to have a conversation with me independently, confidentially about any of these topics, give me a ring. If I'm on a plane, I'd be happy to take a few minutes with you, tell you what worked for me, where I failed, right? Because you stub your toe along the way. Uh, I'm a huge believer in pushing this industry and uh, collectively forward, right? We're, uh, we compete, but we're still uh, in the commercial real estate family. So whatever I can do to help. Yeah, that, that's a tremendous offer. And I'd encourage anybody to uh, to take you up on that because not, not only do you have a, a long tenured career in brokerage, but you've you've been the leader of a lot of these uh, firms and you've invested alongside the way. So people can learn a lot. And I'd, uh, I'd encourage people to really take you up on that. Uh, I, I know that we're uh, we're going to cut off the time here right away, Robert, but I, I just want to end on on one note. And that that is a commercial real estate and industrial real estate specifically is is a tough competitive business. Like you said at, at the beginning, what what our competitors are doing is is pretty incredible. Like if you just look around your marketplace and I, I've said this to a number of people just in my own local market, my competitors are all very smart, sophisticated, well-spoken, educated professionals that are very good at what they do. So I can't just cakewalk my way into business. I have to be doing something uh, that, that helps separate me from these guys. And I still have to be on on their level to begin with. So it, it is a very tough competitive business, but there's also a lot of resources to help you along the way. Robert obviously being being one of them, but even SIOR, and, and, and I'm cognizant not to make this about SIOR either, but I, I do, I want to just end on that. You've got SIOR, CCIM, uh, FRICS, and I believe you had the CRM uh, or CRE designation as well. Is that correct? Don't have counselors. Uh, I have the CPM. I also have the CCIM. And then, of course, uh, Fricks and then SIOR. So we didn't have enough room on the bottom of the screen there to have all those those, those initials on there. Uh, uh, but... We don't want to do that either. We don't want to be that guy. <laughs> uh, so what what would you say to people that are, uh, and, and you could wrap this up with education, networking, the designation itself. What, what would you say to people that, that are considering uh, pursuing a designation? High level associations, I think, are by far one of the most important factors in any career. And of course, real estate's no different. It, uh, I'll just tell you, I'll use SIWAR as an example because you've been generous enough to let me at least, you know, kind of try to highlight the organization as a whole. Uh, where I'm always cautious is we're this global network, right? And I, I talked a little bit about our size, but our promise isn't small. So SIWAR's promise is about being the global model of excellence for industrial and office real estate. As I mentioned, that includes every interaction we have with 3,600 members in 45 countries and for those who aspire to earn the designation and the clients we serve. So aspirationally, it's a very big thing, but it also is an organization that has 81 years of rich history doing that. Now, if you pop into the SI organization tomorrow, that is an instantaneous gratification you get, right? It's it's wonderful that you've earned the designation, but it's like anything you have to put in the time. But I'm always cautious about selling the deal making first. And so here would be, I guess, a convenient way to close. 
the best thing that I ever got out of SIOR was the big idea. It was networking at a conference or at a local chapter, spending time with a member, and they would tell me about something they were doing in their local market that was achieving or helping them achieve this extraordinary level of success. But this was the piece. They actually told me about it. They told me how I could do it. And then they gave me the license and permission to go back to my market and make it my own. And I think that's something that really doesn't get talked about enough with SIOR is the culture and the fabric of the people that are part of it. I can't speak to every organization that's out there, but what I can tell you is if you get involved, the differentiator will be the time you spend, which has kind of been a theme of our conversation. And uh, it's the power of those relationships you build over your career. They're going to have a long lasting impact on your career. Yeah. And, and just a, a little bit of a promotion as well. So I, I sit on the SIOR Technology and Innovation Committee and alongside another SIOR, Kim Ford, we're actually going to be doing a few podcast episodes with, with huge support from SIOR Global, where we're going to have a, a number of different brokers all across the world uh, give their uh uh, information on things that have worked for them either on the technology side or the innovation side or or whatever it'll be quick one to two minute snippets uh, and then Kim uh, and I are going to host that and and basically just give an overview on things that have worked for for brokers SIORs all over the world and, and I think that that's going to be really cool so I I appreciate your support on that Robert helping uh, uh, Kim Ford and myself uh, she's based out of uh, Pittsburgh and she's also got a podcast as well so it, it's gonna be really exciting doing that I'm I'm glad that uh, SIOR was was supportive on that as well and Absolutely. Uh, you're doing the work i'm just there to help support <laughs> i i love this i i get so much energy doing podcasts i i've said to so many people this doesn't feel at all like work to me it's just uh it's something i i love getting to talk to people like you and just ask questions that that i legitimately want to know and i just hope that other people find value in it as well so this this has never felt like work for me even though i've done I think we're over 60 episodes right now, which is kind of crazy to think about, but I've, I've never, I've never thought of this as actually a job. It's just something that I love doing. So I, I yep. appreciate uh, your, your time to do this. Uh, Wyatt, any, do we miss any comments or anyone else uh, pop in? Uh, what's next for you? Uh, well, for Robert, well, I'm guessing you, your, your commitment is to growing SIOR in the industry. Yeah, I, so my commitment to SIOR, right, is, uh, is long-term. So uh, the most immediate what's next for me is hopping on a flight and going back out to the markets and attending events and our chapters, meeting with members and sponsors. So uh, we just finished building SIOR's strategic plan. It builds a five and 10-year view in terms of what we want to look like, which is incredibly exciting. And we'll be finalizing that this October during our conference in Dallas. So there's no shortage of work coming. And as I like to say, the best is still to come for SIOR. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to the fall conference in Dallas. And Ron uh, is in Dallas, and I, I need to hook up with Ron while while we're there too. I'm looking forward to that fall one. Uh, well, we'll we'll wrap up there, uh, Robert. Thank you so much again for taking the time to share your your insights and offering to jump on a call with anyone that has uh, questions about the industry. I, I, I if if that opportunity, well, I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm going to I'm going to call you <laughs> sometime, but. <laughs> I, I wish I, I that someone had offered that when I was younger because you have so many questions and it's you, you might not want to get a, an answer from somebody directly in your brokerage if it's a sensitive topic or relating to the company. So to have a, a non-biased uh, expert like yourself, I, I wish that was available and I'd encourage anybody to take advantage of that. But yeah. uh, uh, thank you again, Robert. We'll uh, we'll leave links to Twitter, LinkedIn and SIOR in the description as well. And I just encourage people to, to reach out with you and connect. Thanks, Chad. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks, Robert. See you in Dallas. Take care. Bye.